0: Kia ora, and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their works, their lives, and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer on the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing Dave Lowe and Kirsten McDougall in conversation with Bev Dool. Kirsten is the author of an eco-thriller novel set in a climate-changed future. Dave is a scientist who's been raising the alarm about atmospheric changes for decades. Both authors say their work was born of anger and frustration at the lack of action to mitigate a looming disaster. Thanks to everyone who made the 2022 Mobile Book Festival such a success. The 2023 event has been held from July 21 to 23, and more details will be available soon. For now... Please enjoy Dave Lowe and Kirsten McDougall in conversation with Bev Dool.
1: Thanks,
2: Linda. Oh, teenakoto, tenakoto, teenakoto kato. Um, my name is Bev Dool, and it's my pleasure to introduce and wrangle these two wise, witty, and angry writers. <laughs> So, Kirsten McDougall's a creative writing teacher and novelist. Her latest work, She's a Killer, is an eco-thriller, set in what is still our recognisable world, but the effects of climate change are taking grip. There's a massive chasm between rich and poor. So this isn't a big bang climate catastrophe, but more of a slow burn. And we see it through the eyes of Alice, a brilliant slacker who's drawn into radical action. She's a Killer has been long-listed for this year's Niomarsh Marsh Award for Best Novel. Kirsten won the Sunday Star Times short story competition last year and has two, had two novels long-listed for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Dave Lowe is an atmospheric scientist and a creative non-fiction writer. His memoir, The Alarmist, tracks a 50-year career as a pioneer in measuring carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. He's travelled the world, and he's braved the elements to gather data that shows increasingly alarming levels of CO2 and the need for urgent action. He describes the alarmist as a journey of despair, but not hopelessness. Dave was part of the United Nations IPCC report team that won the Nobel Prize in 2007. They produce groundbreaking contribution to knowledge on climate change. And this year, The Alarmist won the General Nonfiction Prize at the Ockham Book Awards. So welcome, Kirsten and Dave. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes, and that allows time for questions later on. So Kirsten, you already had two novels under your belt before She's a Killer. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: What got you into thinking about writing about climate change?
3: Um, I was, well it was something that kept me awake at night, so, you know, um, you wake at 3am and, um, you think about silly little things. The other night it was, I got really obsessed with pipe cleaners, um, thinking about pipe cleaners because it's a way to not think about the, the bigger concerns, you know, um, your children and climate change. Um, and I was getting increasingly angry. Um, which is something David and I have in common. Uh, well, lots of people feel this way, um, and I thought I had I had my narrator in um, mind, this woman Alice, who is um, she should she should be brilliant in doing things. She's got um, an IQ just below genius level. Um, she, except that she's a, I guess what I call a a slacker. Um, she's kind of run out of energy to do anything um, and can't be bothered really anymore. Um, So I sort of had her stand in for, um, you know, how I felt about governments and large business organisations who really still are not doing enough to um, make the situation um, better or different. Um, Yeah, and so I thought, this is a really great character to kind of run with an idea. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where that came from. And I mean, there is a thing though with novels where um, at this point, um, you know, it's, uh, it was published in October last year, um, I have ideas about what I did and, and how I did it but really when you're in the middle of writing a novel, it's the messiest process and quite often I've got absolutely no idea what I'm doing or how I'm going to finish it or where I'm going. So it's easy for me to say now, oh yes, this is, it makes it sound very seamless and I'm in control, I'm not in control. But I did know I wanted to write about climate change because one of the things about writing is that if you're going to sit down for um, a number of months at a time and get obsessed about a certain project to become an absolute pain in the ass to live with, you want to make sure it's something that you're going to keep being driven to go back to and back to, and yeah,
2: yeah. So it was uppermost in your mind for that 3am wake up for a number of for
3: a number, number of years. Reasons. Well, um, when I was at high school back in the early 90s, um, there was the meeting at Rio de Janeiro, which was one of the early. Was it one of the early kind of? It was of, one
4: of the first COP meetings.
3: It was. It, it was, was one a of the first COPs. Earth Summit. Earth Summit, so, and the um, Evening Post, as it was at that point, um, put a list from Rio, and they had 10 things that we need to be doing to, um, you know, help help the climate, help help the Earth, yeah. and as a sort of, I don't know how old I was, 15, 16 at the time, year old, I was absolutely alarmed by this, and I remember I cut it out, and I put it on my wall, and, um, I've still got that clip on. I, I looked for it the other day, and we're still not really doing the things they suggest. Well, that <laughs> takes us on to, to Dave, who's been doing a
2: huge amount to find out about what we're facing as an atmospheric scientist, and you've been writing technical reports about CO2 for decades, but why the shift to a personal memoir?
4: Um, yeah, no, thanks for the question, very nice to be here. Um, a very unusual thing for a scientist to do. We, we, we don't write books. <laughs> um, essentially, I, I've published dozens of scientific papers, including um, ones in a very prestigious scientific journal called Nature, as a first author. And uh, it's very clear that nothing was happening. Um, carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere going up and up, not only up and up, exponentially up, and so the message wasn't getting through. So the science was crystal clear. We're approaching dangerous climate change. I was giving a lot of talks. I was talking to politicians, which I'd likened, by the way, to walking through treacle. <laughs> um, nothing was happening. And I realized that through novelists like Kirsten and other people, that it's stories that reach people. People identify with stories. And so I knew that my own story, starting off as a troubled teenager in Taranaki, I'd been through a lot of ups and downs. I figured, yeah, this could be a way of actually attracting a general reader and weaving that plot line, the personal plot line, together with the science and politics, using a kind of a uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey approach, where you've got going through all of these dark places. And so that's what The Alarmist is. It's not a scientific textbook at all. Um, the science behind climate change is actually terribly boring. And a lot of scientists have made the mistake, thinking, oh, yeah, I can, I can write a book, I can engage with the public, and it just falls flat. They might sell 20 copies to, to their mates. The Alarmist is different. It's designed to go out there and make people feel for the life of this poor Taranaki kid and draw them into the message of the urgency of reducing emissions. So that, that was my plan with the book.
2: And it would be really good to have a reading because as, as a scientist and a scientific writer, it's really impressive how you actually get us into your shoes when you're standing out there at Bearing Head. So maybe you could take us up through that, okay. please.
4: So just to preface this, um, the measurements that I've made, I chose a place called Bering Head, which is a, probably one of the windiest and most extreme part, places in the whole of New Zealand. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of the Welling- or not far from one of the Wellington Harbour heads. And the wind there literally comes straight in from the Antarctic unimpeded when there's a southern blowing. It's a horrible place to be. A southerly storm at Bering Head, New Zealand can be a terrifying experience. The wind screams in from the Southern Ocean and races over the cliff edge with a force that numbs mind and body. The noise shrieks by at 40 metres per second, like a Count Dracula soundtrack, a blood-curdling whine accompanied by an eerie howling that varies in pitch by octaves. Anything that's not well bolted or screwed down blows away, never to be seen again. Anemometers designed to measure wind speeds routinely self destruct in the gales. Huge waves pound the beach. I remember a storm that lasted more than seven days. Since the late 1800s, many ships have wrecked in the vicinity, and it's easy to see why. It's not a place for the faint hearted especially at night, when the lighthouse keepers worry about the ghosts of seafarers long since drowned. Bearing Head is the sampling station where I spent countless days and nights alone, making the first ever continuous baseline atmospheric carbon dioxide measurements in the southern hemisphere. The work was arduous and demanding and came at a huge personal cost. Exhaustion and loneliness were my constant companions. It was 1972, I was 23 years old, and those in the subsequent measurements at the site confirmed that humanity's impact on the atmosphere was a global phenomenon, a dreadful discovery that I've lived with for 50 years. Half a century ago, Serendipity set me, a 22-year-old physics graduate, on a path to becoming one of a small group who provided proof that human activities were damaging the atmosphere by dramatically altering its chemical and physical properties. our measurement showed that atmospheric CO2 was increasing around New Zealand as well as in the northern hemisphere. My work since then has taken me around the world measuring minute quantities of the trace gases that are critical to the health of the atmosphere, glimpsing climates long since passed through imprints left in polar ice cores. Along the way, I've faced plenty of setbacks, countless failed experiments and dead ends, battles with decrepit equipment, the frustration of dealing with administrators disinterested in the science, and politicians incapable of comprehending the unimaginable consequences of ever-increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. As I write around me in this tiny Petoni home office, there are symbols of my lifelong journey with the atmosphere. Books, photographs, posters, scientific papers. In a simple wooden frame, a certificate, the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. It's a testament to what I've achieved and at the same time a reminder of the things that my lifetime's work and atmospheric research has not changed. The burning of fossil fuels has continued at a terrifying pace. Atmospheric CO2 has become the principal cause of human-induced climate change. The Alarmist chronicles my 50-year journey with the atmosphere. And as Bev said, it's one of elation and despair. But the atmosphere itself has a history dating back to the dawn of time, one which will continue when we are long gone. How has it changed with time, and what have I seen during my own life?
2: So that sets us up for your your career and, and a memoir about your life. Having written The Alarmist, what's been the reaction? What's coming back to you?
4: Well, um, you imagine my situation. I I haven't written a book before, just scientific papers and reports. And I didn't know what to expect. I was very lucky to um, have the pitch and the initial ideas um, accepted by Fergus Barrowman, uh, publisher for what was then Victoria University Press, where I I met Kirsten, and um, they're very professional. They took um, this work and uh, polished it, but essentially I wrote it. Um, Maybe you will talk about why it's it's called The Alarmist later on. And it exceeded all my expectations. It's been a very good seller for Victoria University Press. It, It won a prize at the Occam's Awards and um, I've just had messages from all over New Zealand, from people who've read it, saying how it's touched them in various ways, um, all be, even beyond climate science and sustainability. Um, early on as a young teenager, I was beaten up and bullied very badly. I was abused. Uh, so I had people responding to that. Um, I. A marriage, my first marriage was destroyed. I had someone saying I'd, I'd help save their marriage. I didn't write, set out to write a marriage guidance council book. Um, Simon Upton said it was a, a chronicle of how society had changed in New Zealand over five decades. So it's been successful beyond my wildest dreams. I, I'm really thrilled with the support.
2: So that, that's the power of, of a personal non-fiction approach. As a novelist, what was your reaction to reading The Alarmist, Kirsten?
3: Oh, oh, so many um, reactions. I think um, one of the things that Dave does um, through the book in each chapter is he notes the um, parts per million, how much the um, CO2 is rising. Um, They have the parts per million, and it starts off at, what does it start off at, Dave? 320. Yeah, and we're now at 412.
4: yeah. Four twelve?
3: Oh, four fifteen. Um, so you're you're looking at this young twenty-three year old um, who's entering a science that is uh relatively new, what he's trying to do, I mean he's having to make equipment to measure um the CO two and it's all so it's all very DIY kind of stuff, isn't it? So that's that's really cool. But as you're watching the parts per million rise, I, I and that beautiful thing of um, you are saying about Simon Upton, saying it's a sort of picture of how New Zealand was, and some Americans, um, young American scientists are over here. And, you know, we just, you know, New Zealand in the 70s, and you describe your house, it's damp, it's cold, it's uninsulated, there's barely, you know, these Americans are sort of, where, where can you buy this, where can you buy that? And, well, we don't actually sell them in these things in New Zealand. And you go to America and you're like, there's, cool. you know, you can buy anything. Um, and, but, you're watching the CO2 rise and my reaction to that is I want a time machine. I want to go back and I want to take a whole lot of people who can speak really clearly about this back and say we're from the future, this is what we can do to, to mitigate this now. And, you know, um, the, the pessimist in me says, yeah, well, you know, good luck lobbying against the oil companies um, back then um (laughs) but it's so there's a a feeling of dread as you read it but then it's so delightful to read as well because I'm just in awe Dave of you um your determination actually is is and it, it makes me think when when you're trying to make the next piece of equipment um it's a little bit like um novel writing or story writing where you're like it's a lot about um it's obviously it's science but it's also about I think I feel there's this other way that I can go to get towards something and I'm just going to actually direct all my energy there and become quite obsessive and there's a similar kind of shared um maybe mental state or yeah um yeah which I find really fascinating but I mean Dave is an extraordinary human being I mean this is a person who's part of a Nobel Prize winning paper right writing it he you know he was doing um doing this the science when it was so new no one really knew what it what it was um and this is someone who also went to um, Germany to do his PhD and, and had to pass an exam. He spent two months swatting the German language so he could pass an exam so he could do his PhD. It's like, yeah. <laughs>
2: like, so so Dave, Dave's going to get a chance to, to reflect on you as well. Kirsten. Right. So This isn't a love fest going one way. But well, what, what, that's my what, reaction yeah. though. It's
3: like, it's, you know, I, you're such a humble person, Dave, when I first met you. I was like, oh, who's this guy? Oh yeah, hi, you're Dave "No, I never heard of you. And then I read, you know, I read the manuscript, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is a legend. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: So Kirsten was the um, publicist at Victoria University Press when um, Dave's book came out. Mm. And that sort of puts you in a kind of a unique position to look at the role of fiction and non-fiction and what part do you think it can play for getting across the urgency of the need for action on climate change?
3: Well, I think that um, we absolutely need the science, of course, you know, um, um, but we need music and, and plays and theatre and, um, you know, and, and film and TV and fiction and, and um, you know, all, all the forms you can find, creative non-fiction, um, to talk about this because it's not, it's all of us, we are all in this. All of us are trying to find ways to, like, first mentally cope with the idea that we are looking at, I mean, I call it a climate apocalypse in my book because the narrator is sort of, she's an utter pessimist. She really is like the worst part of parts of me. <laughs> the real, the, yeah. Um, and, um, Sorry, I'm nothing, if you read my book, I'm nothing like my narrator. <laughs> mm, yes,
4: she is. She's so, <laughs> <laughs> she's
3: so badly behaved. Um, yeah, so we need, and one of the things I did in my book was put in a lot of humour. Like it's, it's, you know, I mean, I think it's funny and people have said it's funny. And because it's so hard to read, day after day, those articles that, um, you know, I look at Guardian and stuff, have a dedicated kind of climate change section. It's really depressing. To, to keep reading that. So we've got to find a way, you know, and I think art has a real part to play in how we can imagine different ways of living, different ways of being that are in harmony with our environment, that is not dictated by a, an economic system, mm. which is, that is how we live now. You know, one of the things um, I, I'm really interested in is, you know, um, maramataka, the you know, Maori idea of living by, um, the moon, the, you know, the cycles of the moon and this sort of thing, and so you know, the idea is, okay, so what, what day is it? Um, you, know, you have low energy days and high energy days and let's work with that, rather than push, push ourselves to work these crazy hours because it's the economic system is demanding this of us. Let's give ourselves time to create and play with our children, you know? Um, and, and it's gonna be slower, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I love the idea of kind of waking up when the sun comes up, not yeah. at quarter to, you know, um, six or whatever it is that you have to do to make sure you get on with your day. You know, you, you mm. capture that sort of
2: economic imperative for growth and wealth really well with when you're describing the people who are now coming to New Zealand in your novel, because it's seen as a as a sanctuary. Perhaps you could give us a reading about... Oh, um, yeah, sure. ...Wealth UGs.
3: Yeah. Sorry if I just talked a whole lot about you, Dave.
4: <laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to talk about Yeah, you. it's coming
3: up. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read from the start of the book. Um, the narrator's on the bus to work, and her imaginary friend Simp is, um, has followed her, unusually followed her out of the house and is... Um, got on the bus and is sitting next to her. Um, so she's just, yeah. Since the wealthy UGs had started pouring into the city more than a year earlier, I'd had a number of casual encounters with men, new arrivals to the end of the world. The problem with them was that they mostly wanted to talk about living in a new country and where they could get good coffee and their trauma and which was the best gym to work out in. I didn't want to hear their stories and couldn't help them. They'd paid for a nice bottle of wine and mistaken me for someone who listened. Their stories were all the same. Their countries were flooded, burning, or in drought. They ran from civil wars and useless governments, and they all had money to leave. I got fed up with them. I pointed out to one guy that he was lucky. He'd been able to come to New Zealand because his family could offer large amounts of money in return for residency. They could afford a small piece of land and watch to build a house. He didn't like that. He slapped my face and yelled at me, saying I didn't understand what he'd lost. Then, to make it worse, he sat on the floor and cried and begged me to forgive him because he had PTSD. It took me ages to get him out of my house. You've always attracted losers, said Simp. I didn't know why Simp was on the bus with me where she could get sat on and pushed around. She'd never left the house when we were kids. You make the rules, said Simp. Anyway. No one will sit next to you if you hold your face like that. Outside, the grey street was empty. Wind was blowing up clouds of dirt and pollen, making the bad and boring architecture of our city look worse. Since the protests over the G situation a few months back, there were fewer people on the street. Ironic, considering the population had increased by half a million in the last 18 months. The violence of the protests had shocked everyone. Five refugees had been shot by people who said they had no right to be here. The police armed up. The fancy restaurants where refugees ate had security guards on the doors. Schools and government offices installed metal detectors. The Prime Minister said there would be zero tolerance for violence against refugees. People said they were scared to go out. On every media platform, there were long threads with people arguing. They said, this wasn't the New Zealand they knew. They said it was a brave new world. They said the government had not governed well in allowing large numbers of wealthy people from falling apart countries to buy their way into our country. They said to turn them away would be immoral. They said that only allowing the rich ones to come was immoral. They said, turn the wops out, they're not wanted. They said, our country was being colonised again. They said, Tino rangatiratanga. They said, shut down the trolls. Now is the time for empathy. They said, tax the invaders. I stopped following. The threads pulled in a knotty tangle. What I did was I caught the bus to work. I sat at my desk and ate the sauerkraut that my best friend Amy made for gut health. I turned on my computer and pretended to work. I read long form articles with a filter that blocked stories containing the words catastrophe, terror, counter terror, Collapse, chaos, end of, deoxygenated, gelatinous, future. I was not interested in such words. Avoidance tactics, said Simp, will kill you in the end, but you've always been good at denial. So there's some themes very um,
2: <coughs> reminiscent of what you, what you were facing, um, Dave. What, yeah. your, what was your reaction when you read that? read She's a Killer, and and saw those themes in front of you again.
4: Oh, the book is extraordinary Uh, for a scientist. You can empathise with it so much. And um, I'd recommend that you all read it, (laughs) compulsory reading. (laughs) Both books. Um, The the character, the main character, absolutely bizarre person that you love and hate. Um, Alice, get this, she communicates with a mother via Morse code, flat above. Um, what what the book does, and I th- you know, scientists don't know how to do this, but it kind of shows you the situation that we're facing with our climate emergence emergency. What um, Kirsten refers to as an apocalypse, and yeah, it's pretty bad. She shows you that through this book, without actually telling you about it. It's not in your face. A scientist would be very direct and telling you all this stuff, and that's that, that. I think is the magic of creative fiction as well as creative non-fiction. Is learning that actually your readers are pretty intelligent, and they should be figuring this out. And Kirsten's brilliant at doing that. She should be. You've got a master's in creative <laughs> writing. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the plot of the novel, but it. It grips you right the way through. Um, I'm a Kiwi, you just respond to this novel, um, you can't put it down, holding on to the edge of your seat, right through to the most remarkable conclusion. So, yeah.
2: great, Thank pleasure you. to read so it. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: I, I think what makes it so powerful is that it's actually recognisable to our world now, it's not that big a leap in imagination.
3: Yeah, I wasn't interested in writing um, this sort of dystopian future, really. I wanted it to be, um, like I'm really vague about when it is, I just sort of say it's a few years from now, Um, yeah, so because that's the thing is, and that's one of the things I've noticed, you know, even with how I behave, it's like we know all this really bad stuff is happening. And yet we go to work. I mean, there's a scene in the book with a meeting, like an office meeting with where she works, which was super fun to write because I hate meetings. So I was like, I'm going to just completely <laughs> go, go for gold here. Um, and um, yeah, and I thought, of course, business meetings, you know, we're still going to be meeting, even though people have been shot in the streets, you know. It's, it's just human nature, I guess. So yeah, so that was really important to me that, yeah. although I do adore books that like um, Station Eleven, I absolutely love and um, the way that the future is imagined in that book is, is brilliant. And the fallout from this crazy pandemic where 99.9% of the population dies. Yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: My guest this evening, Steve Brawny, is one of New Zealand's best known journalists and authors. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022.
1: As an author,
2: uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this.
1: And I kid you not, by the way, uh, Blenheim. And I think I've been, to, I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball. But uh, of all of them, uh, I've been here twice before. And this is the best. This is actually the best. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's just the vibe of it. It's really great. It's really welcoming
4: and friendly. I had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. I, he said, oh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, I'm oh, going to um, going to Blenheim for the
1: literary fest for the books festival. And he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go.
2: So, both have mentioned in their books, and even today, um, that you're angry at the lack of action, or angry and frustrated. So, if you were Prime Minister, Dave, Kirsty, <laughs> No, you're both gonna answer this. What would you do?
4: Well, let's get this straight. First of all, I would never be Prime Minister, because I'm not a politician. Um, but look at this. Um, we've never put a price on carbon. So you can have a great big SUV or vehicle, truck, whatever, belch out CO2 into the atmosphere and yeah, you pay some fuel taxes, but they're not really representing the damage that's being done to the atmosphere. So you think, what, are, what is the cost of that? And you go back to the fires that were in Australia, 2019, 2020, a billion animals perished in those fires, a billion animals. What's the cost of that? So somehow we have this transparent gas. You burn petrol or diesel or coal, and there's this transparent gas that wafts away, and some character at Bering Head says, you, oh, gosh, you know the concentration's gone up. But it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Water pollution, of course, it's in your face we all know what's going on there you can barely swim in any rivers anymore in new zealand but we have if i was prime minister i would make sure yep you can go ahead and burn something that makes carbon dioxide but you're going to pay the cost of a billion animals or flooding the heat waves heat waves to me are one of the most dangerous things well refugees we're going to see who knows how many refugees pouring into new zealand so those are, that's what I would do as prime minister. Carbon tax. Yeah, and there's yeah. that word tax. And politicians don't like the word tax because they think they're constituents. Ooh, you know, we can't have taxes. So you bring it right back. Is it us that's to blame, the constituents? Because we all want low taxes. We don't want to pay the true costs of damaging the atmosphere. So what a conundrum.
3: Mm. Your yeah. Turn, yeah, I mean, it's a, what a horrible job and, um, you know, um, all the hate mail that Jacinda gets, our Prime Minister gets. Um, but, um, so I'd never want it. But, um, well, there's, I mean, I suppose I would look, <laughs> if I was ruler of the world, because yeah. actually it's, it's even bigger than that, isn't it? It's looking at our economic systems, it's looking at this um, continual need for growth. Um, it's looking at, the way we live, I mean I really, um, I'm part of this thing called the stream team where I live in Awwhiro Bay in Wellington, we have a heavily polluted stream, we've got um, two private tips and one the public, the um, city council landfill um, and they all um, have never been particularly well managed and they all drip down into our beautiful stream which have these, these um, eels and things and then flows out into the dock marine reserve. Um, So I'm part of a team where we do a lot of um, riparian planting and just try and beautify the area and and engage with the the different councils. So um, one of the things that I've taken from that is a sense of community and how much I love being out there with my friends who live in the same street as me planting Um, and the kids from the school come and do planting days as well. Um, so I I would love to see um, us put a real value around spending time with each other and getting to know each other, and how can we help each other? Yeah. Because I think that when we don't have, we shouldn't all be running private cars, you know, I don't care if they're electric, actually we don't need to keep making. Well, how, so how do we help people get around? How do we all share the resources that we have? how do we make our lives rich through connection and for me that comes back to art as well Um, you know how can we make because we love to make you know humans we love to you know um, whether it's baking or create things and you know and talk and and yeah so for me um that's the stuff that makes life good and so i want to put an emphasis on making life good and and having a laugh because I think we all need to have a laugh. It's been a hard time, um, and then we can start to get really creative about how we, how we want to see our world, how we change things. You know, we can't do it from a deficit kind of um, model where think all these things that we're so used to having are being taken off us. We can't think like that. We need to think: what could we have? What can we, you know, um, create together? So that's. Yeah, I'd never be elected.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It all starts with ideas, though. And I'm interested because you both in your books talk about the environment, bushwalks, um, surfing, the marine environment, looking after your local stream. How does that feed into your writing and concern about climate change?
4: Oh, very much so. So um, everyone here, will have been in the New Zealand bush, on a beach, on your own, and you feel something. You feel as though you were part of it. And there's a very good reason for that. You are part of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: We're all part of a web of life. And what's extraordinary to me is that indigenous peoples right around the world know this. They've known it for tens of thousands of years. Maori, they talk about Papua Tuanuku, the Earth Mother. They know this, and what's ironic to me is it seems that it's only relatively recent that scientists have caught up with that, and they've invented a fancy name. It's called Earth System Science, which is a fancy name for the web of life. So we really are all part of this Earth. It's it's all connected, and that that is certainly a theme that I've tried to bring across in The Alarmist. And so you can see how absolutely insane it is to wreck part of that web of life, namely the atmosphere, by filling it full of junk. Makes no sense whatsoever.
2: Mm. When you talk like that with your your science colleagues, what's their reaction? Do they look at you as though you're... you're What's got into Dave?
4: they've changed. Uh, I mean, the the fact is that we are facing a climate emergency. This is the last decade we really have to have a good chance of reaching net zero carbon by 2050. We have to have the emissions start peaking by 2025. That's only a couple of years away. So there's been a huge change in, in the scientific community. It used to be, well, we're not political. We would never talk to politicians directly. we would just make some measurements in the lab and write a report and then send it off to the parliament, parliamentarians. They'll, they'll know what to do with it. Well, of course, they've done nothing. So there has been a huge change. And now the alarmist, that's a derogatory term. Um, niwa when this came up, Niwha actually phoned Kirsten saying, oh, you can't have that title for the book. Well, the book mm-hmm. had nothing to do with Niwa. It was our book, right?
3: Yeah, I had to tell the, um, the woman at Niwa that actually she, um, she couldn't give your book a new title. <laughs> she <laughs> was like, why am I even saying this out loud?
4: <laughs> it was extraordinary. But since then, the alarmist has become a mainstream term. It's because scientists are raising the alarm about a problem that's affecting the entire biosphere of the earth. So I'm kind of proud to be an alarmist now.
2: You own it. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> so you both have children, Dave, you have grandchildren. How do you talk to them about climate change?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, My 13-year-old, what, a couple of months ago, was crying about it, you know. Um, I mean, it's that's the thing. Like, we we live our lives and we you know go to school and catch bus and you know he goes he's a he's a real surfer. Um, But um, I think we we talk about little changes we can make within the household. But again, it comes back to. I guess how can we make decisions so that we live our lives that and we can feel fulfilled as people um, but have as little impact as possible. So we have those discussions but it's really scary for them and I tell you what, I would not want want to be, you know, I'd really worry about it, What sort of world. You know one of the things that's because I live in a coastal area and the sea rise, um, Project has just been published in the last month or two, so looking at the projections um, because, of course, we're dealing with land, land subsidence and um, mo- You know, moving. We've also got a lot. We live on a bunch of fault lines, which you know you're all very aware of here. Um, yeah, so kind of looking at our house, going, hmm, is it going to come through sort of the bottom story of the house? We <laughs> just keep living in the top story. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Dave.
4: Yeah, so um, our children born in Germany, uh, they're they're older, but they are really angry. And our son, he actually believes that the people who have delayed emissions reductions belong in jail for what they've done. That's pretty extreme, but he is angry. Um, Our grandchildren, they're three and six, so the three-year-old is interested in locks and dolls. But the six-year-old, he's got a feeling for the for the waves, the atmosphere, and um, I, you know, I, I talk to him about it, and he, yeah, what I was saying before, he feels the bo- he loves going into the bush, he loves seeing the waves on the beach. I've had him on a surfboard, so yeah, young children have these feelings, and I haven't gone into them into any depth obviously about uh, what we're facing, but he will definitely be annoyed about what's happening. I, I work with um, high school climate activists, 17-year-olds, and they are really angry about what's going on.
3: Mm. Yeah. And young children have such a strong sense of justice. I mean, yeah. you know, a, a small child can go, why? Are we, so why are we putting all this stuff into the river? You know, yep. it'll be very clear yep. to them. Very
4: clear. Like, that it's, it's wrong.
3: wrong. Yeah. Yep. They don't have all the kind of um, politicking and it's business stuff It's a straight question right yep. in your face. Yeah. Yeah.
4: That a politician couldn't answer.
3: Mm. Well, they'd have a lot of words for it.
4: But Weasel words.
3: <laughs> That's the other thing I'd do is maybe make the the the... Um, the terms of government longer. I mean, I think that's a real, you know, that's a thing that they talk about, right, is that they're always on this election cycle, so it's very hard to make, you know, big changes. Although, I don't know, other countries have longer terms and they're not doing that much better. We might need to wait
2: until you're both rulers of the world. (laughs) Um, But for now, we're heading into question time. Thank you, you two. I'm sure you'll have provoked some some queries out there. We've got microphones. This is being recorded for a podcast. So if you have a question, please wait for the microphone to arrive and um, we'll take it from there. You have one in the front?
1: Yeah, thank you both. It's um, it's inspiring, it's fantastic. And um, you both talked about getting at big business and corporations. Yeah, unmendable almost, and Dave, you talked about um, politicians equally unmendable, and and you're quite right that it is a a generational change that's going to make things happen. But, Kirsten, you talked about friends, and I've got a wide circle of friends who are the same age as Dave and me. Um, Some of them have got science backgrounds, agricultural science, which was where I started, Um, and the people I play golf with. I can't talk climate change to them. I find it really difficult, and it's almost getting to the stage where it affects your friendships. So how do you cope with those good friends of yours who don't want to believe it? Because I I tend to lose my temper.
4: I'm really glad that you brought that up, particularly about agriculture. So as a kid, um, I grew up in rural Taranaki, I grew up on, on dairy and sheep farms, so to me, um, good farming is about understanding the environment. Good farmers are environmentalists. They know too well that they rely on water, they rely on the atmosphere, they re- rely on the stability of the land. I think the, big, the issue we've got with agriculture in New Zealand is what Kirsten alluded to, it's that profit motive and there are now many farms which are owned by um, Queen Street moguls, Auckland, not not Queen Street, Blenheim, (laughs) (laughs) which is great, I I like that street, I live in Queen Street, Petoni, but this is Queen Street, Auckland, and they're forcing the people running those farms to produce profits year after year after year. Profits and the growth that Kirsten talked about, they do not go. They're, they're illogical when you're talking about a finite planet. You could talk to a high school student and say, hey, what do you think about indefinite economic growth on a place that's actually finite? And they'd just laugh at you. It's illogical. So farming, I think, just it, it's a wonderful um, occupation to be in, but it must be run sustainably and without that continuous profit motive.
1: Yeah, I understand that, Dave. I'm sort of getting it. How do you approach your personal friends who don't want to accept what you're talking
4: about? Okay. Um, One thing you you should never ever, um, you know, it shouldn't be a polemic. So what I do is I point out the dangers, what the science is saying, and the science is rock solid. It's unequivocal. You go to a place like Alaska, you just have to look out the window, you know the climate's changing, and leave it at that. And quite a, it's less so now, but all my life I've faced pseudoscience. Pseudoscience, arguments that to the general public sound quite plausible, but they're actually crap. And that's a very dangerous space for a scientist to be in, because to counter that stuff, takes quite a lot of work and you've turned off your audience. So if someone comes up with pseudoscience, I'll we'll say, well, what's your background? You know, I didn't see you at Head 50 years ago. So avoid confrontation, spell it out like it is.
3: Buy but- the, the books for Christmas.
1: <laughs> I'll definitely, boy, I'll definitely boy, do that, question. but what about your generation? How do you, you come Oh,
3: well, I th- look, I really empathise with what you're saying, um, and I th- think, um, so my mother comes from a Manawatu farming family, and, yeah, I, I know what those conversations sound like, and they're really, it's really uncomfortable to be in the room. Um, and without losing your cool... <laughs> Um, yeah um, so but with my friends I mean you know when I said about the Rio de Janeiro the list of 10 things we could do to help you know that came out when I was 15 so my generation has grown up with you know I've never I've never denied that kind of I've, I've, I've never sort of gone oh that's not real you know that ever so it's um I think that we feel, as we're parents, we feel really worried for our children. Um, We try and mitigate things, but we also feel a bit lost. You know, this is my attempt to try and feel a little bit less lost, because if I can try and articulate some of my fears and worries, that's a way to start thinking or engaging at a deeper deeper level. Um, But yeah, I feel worried, and my friends feel worried. But I don't, I probably, if, if I had a friend who said, oh, I don't believe in climate change, I probably wouldn't be their friend anymore, to be honest. But I'm lucky, because I've got choice, because it's not like all my friends are saying that. I get it, that if all your friends, that's how they think, you're not gonna walk away from them, right? It's hard. You've got a question at the back. Hi, um, I live in Christchurch and If I drive from here to Christchurch I'll see all along the way signs on lots of fences through the countryside saying stop three waters. Um, I think a lot of people who are saying that have not read about three waters they're being told it's a bad thing but they don't necessarily know why Um, and I was just wondering from a climate scientist point of view Dave do you understand three waters and could you tell us what you think the um, the results of, of what the legislation is going to be, will possibly have on the climate?
4: Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so um, neither Kirsten or I are experts in three waters. Um, so my take on it, I'd take a step back and say, well actually isn't it quite a good idea to have safe drinking water for all New Zealanders? And you know, the fact is, that's not the case at the moment. I was just in Ekatahuna on a bike trip a couple of weeks ago. They have to boil all their water. And that's the situation with many many small towns in the Wairapa and all over New Zealand. Uh, I've heard an estimate. Something like up to half a million people have got dodgy drinking water. So you take, take that step back. In Wellington, we have an organisation called Wellington Water it's one of those profit-making organisations that we just talked about. What's their interest? Do they really want to spend heaps of money on maintenance, uh, renewing? There's 100-year-old pipes, isn't there? Yeah, it? that's a lot crazy. Of, but They routinely burst in Wellington streets. So once again, it's what Kirsten alluded to, it's this profit motive. That doesn't seem to me to, the way to run a sustainable future, whether it's supplying your whole population with clean drinking water, or keeping track on carbon emissions and reducing them. So that the, just this whole economic model is not working. I don't know whether that answers your question, but the, do you want to have a...?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know a huge amount, but my understanding, I mean, the way I – from what I understand is the councils have not been dealing with infrastructure, with the water infrastructure they have ignored, in Wellington in particular, they've ignored it for years, years and years and years, so centralising it, I suppose, is one way to have access to greater funds and also to go, well, actually, we, as a country, we drink water, we should be concerned about how this is, this is working throughout the whole of our country rather than kind of looking region by region, so um, I met someone recently who's actually working on it um, in the policy department and he said Wellington is one of the good cases in the country which wow. terrified me because, um, yeah, it's been a nightmare with water in my street and the street away from me has, we've had road works for two years where they're trying to replace pipes and um, yeah, so, and it's very expensive. And
2: it's, it's very interesting. Water mm. is actually quite a strong theme in, in Kirsten's book and the lack of it and the need to ration yeah. it and how yeah. expensive mm. it is.
3: And in my book that's been completely privatised, so every time you turn yeah. on the tap, you have an allowance that you pay for and you'll only get that much. However much you've paid for, that's how much will come out of the tap. So my narrator doesn't shower, she has a bird bath. She doesn't have much money.
2: Mm. Mm. And we have a question here. This is going to be the last one. We're closing in on book selling time.
3: Kia thank you very much. I have to admit that I haven't read either of your books, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, I was interested in the, bu- the debate. So um, I'm just wondering, probably, Dave, on your opinion on the... I wonder if it's just a feel-good factor for Air New Zealand and its um, offsetting of carbon emissions when you fly. Is that sort of something that you've got an opinion on in terms of the practicality of what we can do,
0: everybody is now entering back into exploring the world and flying around the country and just wondered what your opinion on that was.
4: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you raised that. That's about aviation and the carbon emissions. Um, and aviation, of course, it's a, it's a pretty big contributor to uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide emissions. It's not an intractable problem. Um, not too far down the track, we really will start to see jet fuel that's made synthetically from atmospheric carbon dioxide and hydrogen, which has been produced by electrolysis. Before then, if, if, if you have a look at Air New Zealand, I'm pretty impressed. Um, they have an offset scheme which involves planting New Zealand native trees, and these trees are protected in perpetuity by a legal covenant so they can never be cut down. Niwa's just made some remarkable discoveries. Fiordland, which has never been logged, its native forest, um, is a huge carbon sink, even though it's been in equilibrium for hundreds of years. So native trees really are the way to go. Um, It does seem like its indulgences, and it's not a permanent solution. But I think if the price on the carbon is set correctly, and, and Air New Zealand are charging around $80 a tonne at the moment, which is the emissions trading scheme current value, then if you have to fly, if you have to fly, then that is the way to go.
2: Thank you. Well, that's almost a positive note that you think aviation and travel, there are I'm, going to be alternatives coming up.
4: I'm very positive when it comes to new technology. We We know how to do this. In fact, we already have the tools to sort these problems. It's the political will and it's the economics that uh, Kirsten referred to. Those are the things that are holding us back. And of course, human behaviour. And uh, are you an expert on human behaviour? Because I'm
2: I'm not.
3: (laughs) I'm studying it,
4: but no. Changing minds.
2: Yeah. Yep. Well, I think reading these two books is a really good way to change minds and give them for birthday and Christmas presents. Um, if you'd like a signed copy, please go and see um, Dave and Kirsten out at the book table at the end of the session. But um, I'm going to wrap that up now. And thank you very much for coming. And um, it's been a pleasure to meet and talk with you too. Thank you, Bev.
4: Okay, thank you.
0: That was Dave Lowe and Kirsten McDougall in conversation with Bev Dool at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode.